Uh, to kick us off, I want to take us to about two months after Jesus died and rose again. Uh, Peter and John, they're heading into the temple to pray. Uh, and they're asked by a lame beggar for money. In response, the man receives way more than he was expecting to get. The risen Lord Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, through the words of Peter, healed the man. The crowd gathers. Peter takes the opportunity to bang on about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he speaks to the crowd and he says this about the cross. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom he handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You deny the holy and righteous one and ask to have a murderer released to you. You killed the author of life. What a stunning thing to say. You killed the author of life, he says. God, the source of life, the ruler of life, they killed him. God died that day. That's called a Christian belief, the death of Jesus, God the Son. But have you ever stopped to wonder just how crazy that sounds? That the author of life died. God come to earth as a man. That's nuts enough, isn't it? But God dying... The cross of Christ has always been a source of offence to those who don't understand it, a reason to ridicule those who trust it. Marcus Cicero was a Roman statesman. He was a scholar, a lawyer and a philosopher. And this is what he said of crucifixion. To help us get an eye into the wonder that Jesus was crucified. Uh, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. I find that strange. How is it almost an act of murder? But anyway... To crucify him? What? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. The cross was an offensive symbol, a symbol that spoke of humiliation, of shame, of defeat. It was a deliberately dehumanising act. And so the idea of God dying on a cross, it was ridiculous to Roman ears. Uh, to help us uh, appreciate this, here's a, here's a picture of some early graffiti, very early graffiti, um, that helps us see how ridiculous it was to Romans that Christians believed in a crucified God. It's a picture of a Greek man called Alexamenos, and he's being mocked here because he's worshipping his God, which is pictured as a man on a cross with a donkey's head. And, and the words underneath say, Alexamenos worships his God. It's a mocking graffiti, isn't it? Really early graffiti, that is. The idea of a Christian God, the Christian God dying on a cross was stupid. It was barbaric. It made no sense. It was foolishness. The cross was offensive back then. It is still offensive today. Uh, in 2015, the Victorian Department of Education decided to scrap special religious education in their schools. They replaced it with two things. Voluntary special religious education um, uh, that was run either at lunch times or after school, and also an optional part of the curriculum that teachers may decide to include on general religious education. It covered uh, educating students in world faiths, in secular belief systems, and the importance of mutual respect. What's intriguing about the curriculum is that its content on Christianity really 
just bypasses Jesus dying on the cross for sins. Completely misses it. The that the Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the very heart of our faith, is ignored, skipped, not included in what Christians actually believe. Jesus' life and, death, life, death and resurrection simply become examples to follow. Nothing more than that. Why did the writers do this in the curriculum? Because the cross is offensive. That's why. They want a crossless Christianity. The Jesus who dies on the cross to save us from our sin, that's the, that's the God we want. That's the Jesus we want out of schools. That's the Christianity that the world wants to silence. But for the Christian, the cross of Christ, the person of Jesus, the death of God is central. It's essential. In fact, let me put it like this. If you don't know God as the God who dies, then you don't know God. If you don't get the cross of Christ and what it says about God, then you don't get God. Let's pray as we consider the wonder, the glory, the fullness of God revealed at the cross in Jesus Christ, that we'd be struck by that again and be changed. Why don't you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. And we pray that as we reflect on this today, you'd move us, you'd change us by your Spirit. We pray that what we read, what we consider, and what we reflect on would make us more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in our midwinter devotion series, we're looking through Exodus. Uh, if you haven't started yet, let me encourage you to download it. It's on News to Notice um, and start doing it. It's, just, it's a really good thing. And by the way, if you haven't seen the reflections in the News to Notice by um, the Hughes family from Church at Four, let me encourage you to go back to News to Notice, click on it. It's just a really encouraging thing to check out to see how they've been impacted by the things they've been reading in Exodus. Anyway, as we've been looking through Exodus, it's crystal clear that God's salvation of his people from Egypt wasn't just a salvation event. It's a revelation event. You can see that in this key passage that, we, uh, that came up in the devotions in chapter 6. Therefore, let the, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the forced labour of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labour of the Egyptians. So for the Israelites, their God, Yahweh, is the God who powerfully saved them from Egypt and brought them to himself. From the Exodus on, they knew God, they knew Yahweh as the God who saved them from the Egyptians, from slavery in Egypt. And the same is true with God's great and final salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. It is just as much as a revelation event as it is a salvation event. Um, turn with me to John chapter 1. Hopefully you've still got John 14 open. Turn to the left, to the beginning of the book, John chapter 1. These verses won't come up on the screen because I want you to look it up. Um, and we're going to look at verse 1 of John chapter 1. Uh, if you've got one of the black Bibles uh, on the way in, it's on page 941. I'll just read the first five verses. As uh, John introduces us to the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now John, we know, is speaking here about Jesus, the word of God. He's not just the word from God, he's the word of God. Jesus is the light. He's the light that reveals the true wonder, the glory, the reality of who God is. Jesus is the creator word, the God of heaven and earth. And in verse 14, John tells us, this word became flesh. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Drop down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. God the Son reveals the true character and person of God for us. The glory of God is seen in the Son. The glory that was hidden from God's old covenant people is revealed in the open in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now turn with me to John 14. And we'll stay in John 14. And the other passage will come up on the screen from now on. John 14. Uh, We see the same thing here. Have a look at verse 6. Um, Jesus says these famous words to Thomas. Thomas has just voiced the confusion and the concern of the disciples about Jesus going away. This is what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to reflect on those words soon. But look at what he says next. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Such strong words, aren't they? Jesus says, if you know me, you know my Father. If you hear me, you hear my Father. Jesus is the full revelation of the person of God. The disciples hear what Jesus has said, but they still don't get it. This time it's Philip's turn to voice confusion. He says, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough for us. In response, Jesus just repeats his point. Have a look at it. Verse 9, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. The works of Jesus are the works of the Father. The words of Jesus are the words of the Father. There's no distinction And that should not have been a new idea for the disciples. Jesus has already said that he and the Father are one. He's already said that the words and the works of him are the words and works of the Father. Now, last week I spoke about the wonder that we can be called children of God, didn't I? Uh, If you were here. That we could be called sons and daughters and that as sons and daughters of the living God, we need to show a family likeness. Uh, There's my brothers and my mum. And you can see a family likeness that's there. The sonship of Jesus is next level. Jesus as a son of the Father doesn't just show a family resemblance. Because of their oneness, you know one, you know the other. You know the son, you know the father. It's a bit different with us. You know, if, you, if you knew my father, you'd sort of know me, but you wouldn't know me. There's a difference. Now, the father is not the son. The son is not the father. But if you know the son, you know the father. The connection is that strong. He doesn't just represent him, he fully reveals him. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Long ago, 
God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. What a stunning thing to say. That in knowing Jesus, we know the God who made us. But where do we know best the God who made us? Paradoxically, the full revelation of the glory of God is in the shame and the apparent weakness and defeat of the cross. In John 12, Greeks come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and they ask to see Jesus. For some reason, that's a trigger for Jesus. And he starts to talk about the glory of the cross. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23, what's the pinnacle of that glory? How is this glory going to be revealed? Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Then he goes on in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The cross is the crowning glory revealing moment. The moment that reveals the full glory and wonder of who God is. The person of God revealed in the Son through the victory, the wisdom, the power of God. In Christ the Son dying, God the Son dying. That's God's great salvation that makes his salvation of Israel from Egypt look small. The power and the glory of God revealed in the Exodus, the plagues, the miracles, the words from the mountain, they're just shadows. They're just reflections of a greater salvation, the greater power and wonder and glory of God at the cross. You want to know the wisdom of God? You look at the cross. You want to know the power of God and the glory of God? You look to the cross. Where do you see the glory of Sydney? I'll tell you what, you don't see it on the train on the way in, do you? No, you see it at the harbour. That's where you see the glory of Sydney, the full beauty and splendour of the harbour, especially New Year's Eve. Where do you see the glory of the Olympic Games? You see it in gold, don't you? The skill and the power of the best of the best. Where do you see the glory of humanity? You see the glory of humanity and the great things that we can achieve and do. Space exploration, amazing building projects, world records, medical achievements, the stunning wonder of what we can do as humans. That's our glory. Where do you see the glory of God? You see it at the cross. As the sun dies in our place, we see God revealed for us in a way that we could never, ever, have imagined. To help us think through this, I'm going to paint a hypothetical for you and you're going to answer a question for me. Let's say the mess of sin never happened. Let's say Adam and Eve didn't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That all we had was Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. That's all we had to know about God. There was no sin in the middle. There was no salvation event. I want to ask you, what would we know about God if that's all we had? You've got 60 seconds. Talk to the people around you. What would we know about God if all we had was Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22? 60 seconds, go.
Okay, that's close enough. I'd love to know your answers. What would we know about God if that's all we had? Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. Pardon? He, we'd know that he's the creator. That's right. What else? He's a, it's all coming from one seat here. He's a provider. That's right. He, not only does he create, he continues to give. What else? We'd see the beauty, yeah, the order of God. That God is a God of order and beauty. Absolutely. What else? We would know God, but when you say just know God, that's right. The relationship never broke. It would always be right. That's right. We would be in a living, personal relationship with God. Yep. What else? Pardon? We'd know that he's king. That's right. Would we know God's love? We would. Absolutely we would. But we wouldn't know the depth of God's love, would we? We would. Pardon? Well, we'll, we'll start thinking about that. That's right. Um, yeah, you're right. Can you, ever, uh, can you ever understand the unfathomable love of God? Yeah, but there's stuff that we would know about. Yeah, we'll think about that. Well, that's the next step, isn't it? We would know God's love. How will we know God's love? Because he continues to provide. He continues to give in loving relationship with us. That's absolutely right. But let's, let's take that next step. Um, the, the next question is, it'll come up, uh, what would we not know about God if we didn't have the cross? Let me. That's a negative way to put it, isn't it? What do we know about God that we didn't know about God if we, because of the cross? You tell me. We would know God as righteous in a way that we don't. We wouldn't know if we, all we had was Genesis one and two and Revelation twenty one and twenty two. What else? We would not go God as a God of mercy. That's right. God, if you, yep. As God, as God, God is a God of faithfulness and patience. Yes. God is a God who forgives. We would never know God is a God who forgives. We would never go God is a God who judges. That's right. We right. We wouldn't need those things, but we wouldn't. We wouldn't need those things. That's right. But we wouldn't know these true, wonderful things about God because we wouldn't have seen it. Yeah. We will still know God truly, but we now know God more deeply. We still know the love of God, but we now know the love of God through sacrifice, that he is willing to go to that length to love us. We would never know that if sin wasn't there. We see the full glory of God, his compassion, his patience, his righteousness, his grace and mercy, his power to save. We only know that because of the cross, the full depth of it. In short, we get to know God in his glory through the cross. At the cross, we see the full depth of God's character in a way that we wouldn't see any other way. That's why if you don't know God as the God who dies, you don't know God. If you don't know God, if you, if you don't get the cross of Christ and what it says about God, you don't get God. 500 years ago, a young man, uh, Martin Luther, a uh, great reformer of the Christian church, put it like this in a debate uh, with a Catholic theologian. He said, we teach Nothing save Christ crucified. Christ crucified is the centre of his theology. Again, in the Sermon on the Psalms, he said the cross alone is our theology. Now, if you know Luther's quotes, if you know Luther, you know that he understands God as creator, 
but the heart of his theology is the cross. Charles Spurgeon, great English pastor and preacher uh, from the 1800s, put it like this, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Love this guy. We need to know God is the God who died, fully revealed in the death of Christ. Because if we don't, we don't know God. So we thought big picture about the things that we learn about God um, through the cross. Let's go back to John 14. Let's see what this passage tells us about um, God being uh, revealed in God the Son. John 14 verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's go through those three things in turn. I am the way. John 10, uh, Jesus says that he's the gate and he's the shepherd. He's the way to find life and relationship with the God who made us. I'm the gate. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief only comes in to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Jesus brings the Father. In the old covenant temple, the priest couldn't enter into the most holy place except once a year with a bunch of sacrifices and smoke filling the holy place, the most holy place. That whole system of sacrifice and temple worship kept on saying, you shall not pass. You cannot come in. You cannot come into God's presence. Just willy-nilly. But when Jesus came as a once-for-all sacrifice, as the true and faithful high priest, as the fulfilment of the temple, a place where we meet God, through his death, we can boldly enter the most holy place. We have access to the Father, confident in sins forgiven. This passage from Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, drop down to verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Without Jesus, there is no way to heaven. There is no way that we can access God. The gates of heaven are closed and judgment is all we would know from God. Jesus is the way to the Father, to heaven. Jesus is also the truth that sets us free. Now, Jesus is the truth in the face of all the lies and deceptions of the world. He speaks the words of the Father. He exposes the lies and deceptions of the world and shines a light on the truth of who God is and who we are and, who the, and what the world is like. As we saw in John 1, Jesus is God's final word, his full revelation of his glory. In John 8, Jesus tells us this, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth brings freedom. If Jesus is the truth, then without Jesus, we're enslaved in lies, the lies of Satan that seeks to rob us of what we're created to be, the lies we tell ourselves to excuse our sin, the lies we tell ourselves that we can, we've got this whole life thing worked out when we don't. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. He gave life in creation. He gives new life to those who trust in him. In him is life. He's the water of life. He's the bread of life. He's the resurrection and the life. In his ministry, he gave physical life to the physically dead. And he now, through the cross, gives eternal life to those who believe in him. Without Jesus, there is no life. We might live now, we might breathe now, we might even enjoy our life we have now, but that life will be marked by death and in the end will land in judgment 
without him. Without Jesus, there's no life. So in Jesus, we see the full and final revelation of our creator God. We see the full extent of his love. That he embraced the shame, the horror of the cross so that we could receive forgiveness and life and hope and eternal relationship with him. In Jesus, we see God enter into our darkness, our brokenness, our lostness. He experiences the evil and rejection and loneliness. He cries, he mourns, he loves, he cares, he serves. And in Jesus, we see the wonder that God sacrifices himself for us. We meet the God who dies. So if God is the God who died for us, who carried the cross, what does it mean for us? If we are to follow him, what does it look like? What does it mean to follow a crucified son? Jesus took up his cross and he asks us to do the same. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. The mark of the Christian is that we take up our cross. What does it look like? I'm going to briefly mention four things. Firstly, to take up our cross means suffering now. Glory coming. As Jesus' life and glory was shown in suffering, so we too will suffer. We shouldn't expect anything less. Our lives will be marked by suffering. The world hates um, the world of sin, sorry, hates God who exposes that sin, and they'll hate those who bring that message to them too. Suffering of all kinds. Jesus promised that the world would reject those who follow him, because they rejected him. Suffering of all kinds, including persecution by the world, are opportunities to suffer with Jesus and leave as his disciples. Suffering shouldn't surprise us, because we believe in the God who suffered and died. And we know that God works through suffering to bring patient endurance, to perfect our faith, to remind us of the hope of glory. Suffering of all types is a gift of God that sharpens our longing for things to be put right in ourselves and in this world. And through it, God is asking us, through suffering, God is asking us, do we really believe in this God who died for me? Secondly, to take up our cross will mean that we are marked by humble service. Jesus God the Son did not seek to be served, but served and gave his life as a ransom for those who trust in him. And those who take up their cross and follow Jesus are those who serve humbly, sacrificially, not for recognition, not for importance, not for influence or attention, but for the good of those they serve, following their Saviour. Because that's what our God did for us. Thirdly, taking up our cross will mean our lives are lives that are done with sin, that are done with the deceptions of our world. The truth revealed in Jesus who died, it shows that the glory of the world doesn't last. It shows that the life promised by the world actually ends in death. It shows that the wisdom of the world that loves pride and power is actually foolishness. But so often... Again and again, we're deceived by the power and the promises and the glory of the world, aren't we? We turn to that instead of turning to our Saviour. We live for these things and subtly turn our back on the God who died. Those who take up the cross are done with sin and done with the deceptions of the world. We turn our back on that. Fourthly, finally, 
To take up our cross will mean our lives will be marked by sacrificial, self-giving, generous, compassionate love. We looked at this last week. It's good to look at it again. A love that reflects the love shown to us at the cross. Our world thinks that God, the God who died is ridiculous fiction, weakness and foolishness. But we have to ask ourselves, have we embraced the wonder and the glory of God revealed at the cross, revealed in the Son? Have we embraced the suffering? Have we embraced the sacrifice? The rejection of the deceptions of the world and chosen to love like he loves? Truthfully, for me, I need to hear this message again and again and again because I am so tempted by the wisdom of the world and the power of the world. We all are. So we need to come back to the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and you died in our place. That you are the God who died for us. Thank you for that astounding sacrifice. We pray that it would help us to be people and live with you at the centre. Thank you that we can know you as you really are on the inside, in a profound and wonderful way. Help us be people to take up our cross and follow you. Amen.